Welcome to the Get Healthier Podcast with Rena Jadhav, who's on a quest to uncover breakthroughs and cures in living longer, healthier, and happier. Genetic testing, stem cells, rattling, talking to Silicon Valley geniuses and the best doctors in the world about the hottest products and programs to make you live an amazingly joyful life. Are you ready? Now, here's your host, Rena. Hi, this is Rena Jadhav, and welcome to another episode of Healthier Podcast, where today, we are going to hopefully awaken you to a life without disease. So my guest today is Kelly Brogan. She's an MD, a holistic health psychiatrist, who did her fellowship at NYU Medical Center after graduating from Cornell and uh, has a BS from MIT, so truly a a brilliant woman. She's also the author of the New York Times bestselling book, A Mind of Your Own, Own Yourself, which is her brand new book, which is what we're going to talk about today. Uh, A little bit more about Kelly. She's a board-certified psychiatrist and a specialized in root cause resolution approach to psychiatric syndromes and symptoms. Now, her book, uh, Own Yourself, which we're going to talk about today, is one of the most richly detailed accounts of how to lead a healthy, awakened life that is pharma-free. Please. Welcome, Dr. Kelly Brogan. Kelly, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. You say illness can be seen as a special invitation to wake up. Um, Health is not simply about meds or no meds. It's about answering the question that your symptoms are asking. My God, it really makes you think. And your book is not just about getting out of depression or anxiety, but it's really about awakening to, to our true self, isn't it? And just learning how to be in a body. It's really hard. It's really hard to be in a body and to try and understand simultaneously who we are. And if we can begin to approach that agenda alone, then we have come a long way into understanding how to resolve the victimhood that tends to run like a toxic, venomous current you know, beneath each of our life stories. And what I've really tried to do with this book is to create a bit of a roadmap to moving beyond your victim stories, the ones that feel so good because they validate that part of you that is struggling, that's been trying so hard, that's been doing everything possible and nothing seems to be working. And it's just, you know, one problem on top of another, on top of another, and this illness that you can't ever get out from under How do we transform that experience into one that is, you know, fundamentally oriented towards meaning, there being a reason, um, and to put you uh, in the driver's seat, right, as an adult, as the one who knows how to be you. Mm -hmm. And most of us don't even begin to consider this um, task until we're in like our 30s, you know. When the crisis hits. Yeah, and when we've kind of baked in our personality and we have a sense of who we think we are or who we need to be in order to please and appease those around us and to get these little hits of love, acceptance, um, and, and at worst, just tolerance, you know, from our boss, from our family members, from our spouse, from our friends. But we, we get to this point where we have that, this feeling like of awareness that we're wearing a mask. And that we either have to like tape it on tighter and make sure it's really glued on there because it's kind of starting to slip. And there are parts of us that, that 
want declaration. You know, there are parts of us that want to be seen, that want to be acknowledged. Um, or that maybe we can just take the mask off and see what happens. And I'm finding that there are more and more people who are coming to this point in their life, again, whether it's in their 30s or 40s or 50s, 60s, they're coming to this point where they are infused with a sense of irrepressible curiosity about who it is that they are. Mm -hmm. And invariably, what they find out is that, in fact, not only are they not who they thought they were, identified with their career, perhaps identified with a certain romantic partner, perhaps identified with certain personality traits, right? And in fact, as they become who it is that they really understand now that they are, they were this person the whole time, right? So it's not a linear path where you're getting closer and closer and closer to the destination of you. It's this strange spiral, um, like a cyclical process almost where you're discovering something that always was. And that's why, you know, I came across this word, this Greek word um, called anamnesia. And loosely translated, it means the remembrance of something once known. And that's to a person, you know, um, how this process is described. This process of awakening is not, it's not a learning, right? It's not an education in something new or novel. It's this reminder of a sense that the world can make, right? An order, a design, um, like a, oh, of course, of course, right? And, and somehow there's a lot of fear that attends this process because we're very entrenched and used to our coping mechanisms being what they are. And a lot of this has to do with the way that we relate to symptoms the way that we relate to the body and how scared we are of ourselves ultimately and of our symptoms right so i love how you say that in psychiatry we've missed some important pieces i mean yeah. mental health is a crisis of epic proportion we're starting to see it down in um, little children you know elementary school middle school they're being prescribed these these medications for mental health issues and symptoms are sort of what we look at as, hey, something's faulty with you. Correct. And you say that symptoms are not necessarily that something is wrong with you. So what is it that psychiatry has missed? What is your big insight here? Yeah, it's the context, right? Psychiatry refuses to acknowledge that there's actually anything awry in the world, right? Because if you think about it, when you're struggling with anything ranging from fatigue to poor concentration to low mood um, to sadness, to erratic behavior, maybe you're having, you know, perceptual issues, whatever it might be, fundamentally, the, the dominant medical orthodoxy is going to frame you as having the problem. And what's interesting is that I think that we all walk around, um, I really think it's all of us, we walk around with this sense, deeply buried, that something is wrong with us, right, that we're not worthy of love, that, that you know, we're not good enough, right? Or, the, or the, the, the partner to that, which is that we're too much, right? Whatever it is, we, we carry this and we, we most of us, um, experience this as a result of conditional love-based parenting, right? Where we were raised in a household by whomever our primary caretakers were. And maybe we weren't, frankly, abused. But even if we weren't, we were introduced to the idealized child, right? To the, 
to the good child. Who is the good child? What do they eat? You know, how much do they eat? Do they do their homework? Do they clean the house? And then any ways in which we departed from that idealized child, we naturally felt inclined to bury and hide those inclinations, right? So maybe it's the, the, the version of little Kelly who cried too much or the version who got mad inappropriately or the version who didn't feel like doing her homework, right? So bury, bury, bury all of those pieces. And so then we walk around life feeling like we have this secret badness. And when you go and you meet with a doctor and you've been feeling unwell in various ways, and that doctor says, you know what? Something is wrong with you. It even has an ICD-10 code, right? <laughs> and here is the medication that's going to help you manage this reality, and it's going to be okay. How does that not feel validating, right? It's, it's, exactly. it's inevitable that you would take the bait if you don't know better. And the, the reason it's a bait or like a poison apple is because what happens is then you're trapped in a, in a dyadic relationship with this physician or clinician where you are constantly revisiting, remember something's wrong with you. Every time you open that pill bottle with your name on it, remember something's wrong with you. Okay, if you don't take these meds, something, the something wrong with you is going to be a problem for you and everyone in, in your life. But if we don't acknowledge that there are many, many things wrong with the world today, right? That, and there have always been things wrong with the world, of course, but that we are so far off the path of an understanding uh, that we are a part of this planet, right? That we are not just simply standing on it, but that we are an emergent phenomenon, right? Connected, you know, in every way to all that is this green earth. We have we're very far flung from that understanding. And that's why, you know, we've come to this relationship, not only to, to, to the environment, but even to our own selves and our own lives where we're just punching the clock, you know, and we're just, it's all convenience based. It's very myopic and it's rife with disconnection where we're disconnected from communities. We don't even know what communities mean. Well, who are those like the moms over there while you're dropping your kids off or, is it the people also waiting in the doctor's office? Like, what is a community? We don't have a sense of that. Our families, I mean, I, I don't know anyone practically who has authentic relationships with a family of origin that is extensive, more than like a nuclear modular home kind of a family, right? Where these are people who see you, get, get you, are there for you, and are a part of the fabric of your life. That's largely unraveled for most of us, right? We're yeah. disconnected from our bodies because all we're taught through advertising and the dominant cultural narrative is that your body is a ticking time bomb and you better be ready for when it goes off. Right. And then we, we have this sense like we're more than we're presenting, you know, to the world. So could it be that we're also disconnected from our souls? Right. I know that word was not uttered one time in my decade of training, literally not one time. And, and psychiatry actually means etymologically doctor of the soul, amazingly. So this is how disconnected we are and, and how much we find comfort in the material realm, in the, in the visible realm. And the unseen, the invisible, the quantum, if you will, is dismissed, denied, neglected, and even disparaged by this narrative that, that foregrounds that material realm. So we're really at this interesting moment where Many people are recognizing I could go to the doctor, right? I could take medication. I could get my diagnosis. I could understand what's going on and know what to do, right? But that we're sensing, some of us, that there's like 
maybe a dead end there, right? Like maybe there's like a bankruptcy to that model that we intuitively feel we can't be entirely duped anymore. Right. Not the way we could even 20 years ago, that it's like there's too many people who are having experiences that poke very serious holes in that model. And maybe it doesn't really work, right? That's the problem. It doesn't really work. It does if you are very committed to a certain mindset, right? Because the concept of working, right? So what is, how do we know if it's working or not? If, if the only goal is the management of symptoms, you could argue that, in fact, it does do that, right? When I was prescribed... Doesn't it create more suicidal, for example, the pharma drugs that are used to manage anxiety? Don't they often create more anxiety, more suicidal yes, thoughts? Absolutely. Terrible but if your, if your perspective is they can always be managed by another medication, then you end up being one of these people who are on five medications when all that happened was you broke up with your boyfriend sophomore year in college, and now 30 years later, you know, you're on, on five or six medications and you have seven new diagnoses. This is a normative pattern in, in our culture, and it's because we are – so I, I believe in a victimless world, right? And, and we are participating. We're choosing to engage that model, mm-hmm. right? So it's, it, cannot, it can no longer be that it's like these hapless patients who are victimized by big, scary, bad medicine. Not anymore, and maybe right. never, um, because you would only engage that if that's also your mindset, right? And that's why when you adopt a different mindset, one that says, no, you know, my symptoms actually are a means through which my own spirit communicates to my conscious awareness, right? How else would I know to attend to these various aspects of my lived experience, whether it's like the coffee I shouldn't be drinking in the morning or, you know, the, the mold in the wall or, you know, the, the lipstick I should stop using, whatever it is. Like, the, how else would we intuit that if we don't have an intuitive apparatus online because we're so inundated and overwhelmed and, and not clear? Right. So until and if you can get clear enough to read your body's subtle sig- signals, it's got to knock louder. That's what a symptom is. It's like it's pulling your skirt saying, pay attention, pay attention. This is not this is not how you are your most powerful. Right. This is not how you get into alignment where you can access your creative power, you know, because. That's what I've observed, you know, as I've seen people transition from medication-based consciousness to med-free consciousness, they literally come into to, to the capacity to access their own creative power, what it is they're here to do. But literally things, businesses, you know, endeavors, nonprofits, communities, works of art, I mean, literal and figurative things begin to emerge from them effortlessly and they get into a, a flow state that, you know, is we would have no idea how to engineer, right? So it's, it's only by getting clear enough to be able to, to read your own signals and your body is that compass, right? So if I'm like, do I take this job or not? Do I, you know, make a phone call to this person or not? Do I date this person or not? If my body's clear and my mind is disciplined, I can feel the yes or the no inside. That's, that is the best way 
Right. Determine, right? Because if I'm doing it from a, the pros and cons list of logic that most of us have been enculturated around, we all know we can convince ourselves of some, we have blind spots, right? We can convince Absolutely. ourselves of some pretty crazy Absolutely. stuff. So it's far greater than just like a style of medicine um, that we're contemplating here, you know? So Kelly, let's start with chapter one. You talk about um, canaries in a coal mine. And you talk about the fact that we have strayed so far from the path um, that it's really an evolutionary mismatch that is being manifested in our health experiences. Talk a little bit about what do you mean by an evolutionary mismatch? Yeah, so I'd like to reframe, I think, a very popular perception, which is that the people who get sick, right, and who are diagnosed and medicated, but specifically around psychiatric illness, that rather than being these kind of broken, damaged goods, you know, kind of like destined for chronic illness types of folks, that actually I've been told many of those who find themselves in this situation actually believe to be consistent with their own self-perception. Like they actually think about themselves this way. And so when they receive these diagnoses, it feels like, of course, you see, I knew something was wrong with me, right? So rather than that being um, the explanation, what I found is that these are the individuals who are what I call the canaries in the coal mine, right? So they are exquisitely sensitive to the very real things that are amiss and awry on this planet today, right? Whether that's the food that we're eating, the way that we are, you know, conducting our day-to-day our -day lives in, indoors and without sunlight exposure, without movement or grounding, the way that we have exposed ourselves to toxicants, the 100,000 some unstudied toxicants, the ways that we are thinking about life, right? All of the grief that is to be felt around what we're doing to this planet, right? That these individuals, they cannot punch the clock as if everything is okay. On like a deep soul level, there's a rebellion, right? There's a no. And sometimes that no looks like chronic fatigue. Sometimes that no looks like multiple chemical sensitivity. Sometimes that no looks like erratic behavior, right? Sometimes that no is just the opting out and shutting down that we call depression. Sometimes the no is like, this is not okay emergency that we call anxiety or panic, right? And so these individuals, once they are brought into the conditions of alignment, which is actually quite simple to do, the power that begins to channel through them, the vision, the creative force is, becomes irrepressible. And I, I find them to be the most important, vulnerable population on the planet right now, because we need that kind of vision to get ourselves out of the crisis we've created. Absolutely. The, definitely, I think, I love this reframing of the fact that, no, I'm not sick. The, the world, world around me has created a situation um, that I'm rebelling against. And so I need to set that in order for me to go back to being my thriving self. I love it. Chapter two, uh, the pill is the problem. Why taking pills for your pain and suffering is the problem, not the solution. Wow, tell us more. I thought the pill was the answer. So did I. <laughs> I thought the pill was the answer. That's why I specialized in prescribing it to pregnant and breastfeeding women. You know, I, I believe so much in that, that model of legitimate science. And so I was extremely shocked 
to learn what it is that I um, uncovered and also was able to represent from those who have walked this path before me, uh, people like Peter Bregan and Joanna Moncrief and David Healy and Irving Kirsch. I began to read their work that I'd never encountered in my entire near decade of training, um, prompted by my own you know, health opportunity, if you will, health crisis. And it was what I learned through their work that helped me to understand that actually in, in six decades of literature, we do not have valid evidence that mental illness is a chemical imbalance of any kind, right? So not for schizophrenia or OCD or depression, or you name it. And the evidence actually doesn't exist. And it's not for lack of effort because there ha have been postmortem studies and um, different kinds of brain analyses and metabolite measurements and serum analyses. And it's not, it's come up empty the same way that the genetic efforts to identify the hereditary underpinnings of mental illness have also come up empty. Right. And so what we have is a reverse engineered model where the medications that we are applying to these situations have given birth to the theories about what is wrong, the pathology in the patient, right? So if we're giving a medication we've already decided is an antidepressant, then what does this medication do? Oh, that must tell us something about what's wrong with that person's chemistry. And so that reverse engineering is the story of most of the modern medications. Um, the, the trouble is that the evidence base for their efficacy and the evidence base for their adverse effects um, is far broader than you are in any way positioned to learn about in your doctor's office. It's actually really not realistic or maybe even possible for your doctor to truly provide informed consent. And I know this because I was in the position doing the best that I could and I simply wasn't exposed to information that would have provided my patients true informed consent around the habit forming nature of these medications and how they are, in my opinion, the hardest chemicals on the planet to discontinue far worse than the opioids and then, you know, crack cocaine or alcohol, far, far, far um, more severely potentially disabling. Um, the risk for impulsive violence, and that includes suicide and homicide that can emerge directly from even a few doses of these medications um, and their correlation um, is, is more than just you know, an umbrella out in the rain and then blaming the umbrella for the rain, that we have a causal understanding of the mechanism behind which um, these medications can induce these states, including in the settings of school shootings, et cetera. Um, and, you know, and for what, right? Like, what are they actually doing? Well, if you, if you think about alcohol, right, and you think, okay, well, let's say we're studying social anxiety. If we give our study subjects two shots of vodka a night before they go out, you know, or go out to dinner with someone or socialize or whatever, odds are that at the end of four to six weeks, we probably find this to be an effective intervention, right? But we all intuitively know that that wouldn't mean, the, you know, that we've like resolved an alcohol imbalance, nor would it mean that this is the best option, right? Exactly. That it might be something safer. And so in fact, that's kind of what we're working with when it comes to um, psychotropics, although the efficacy parameters are actually even um, probably, relatively speaking, more um, dismal because, you know, when we take into account some of the sleights of hand that are permitted by the FDA um, 
for the pharmaceutical industry to engage in. These are statistical sleights of hand, but they're also designed, like the way that these studies are designed. And then we take into account something that Irving Kirsch calls the active placebo effect, which means that because of direct-to-consumer advertising, we have all been enculturated to believe that these medications are going to help fix our chemical imbalance, right? And so when we start to have side effects from them, dry mouth, little gastrointestinal distress, little headaches, what happens is a whole cascade of healing pharmacopoeia, you know, is unleashed. And you actually may feel different. You may feel better. But it's not because of the mechanism of the medication. It's because you believed that you were actually beginning to get better because the medication began to have an effect that told you it was having an effect, right? And, and when, mm -hmm. go ahead. No, no, please. Oh, sorry, I was just gonna say, and when we compare these medications to medications that have nothing to do with psychiatry, like atropine, which is like, let's say a cardiac medication, but have very similar side effect profiles, right? The efficacy is the same. So we have to disabuse ourselves of this notion that it's actually fixing something specific to our mood, cognition, or behavior, and introduce ourselves to the idea that the medication is a chemical having an effect, just like alcohol is ha having an effect. You may like it, it may be adaptive for you, but it's important not to engage the illusion that it's fixing something in you. It's also important for your own self-empowerment, you know, to, to, to orient towards medication as, you know, a state-altering aid, if you will, rather than something that is fundamentally healing, because there's actually no evidence to suggest that that's what it's doing. And that's what you call uh, psychiatry's dirty little secret, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it makes a lot of sense why I didn't encounter this information in my training. And again, it's because I say, like, you wouldn't go to a butcher to learn about veganism. You know, like, know your source. Exactly. And the source where I got my information is a pharmaceutically subsidized empire that is internally consistent with the belief system that illness is bad, symptoms are a range from nuisance to life endangering, and the best we can do is to manage them. I never offered patients remission or a cure. That was never on the menu. Right. I only offered them symptom management. And it wasn't until I learned this information, I put down my prescription pad for good, that I actually, you know, encountered an entire population of people on multiple medications for decades of their life who actually felt incredibly unwell if not very actively symptomatic, and at the end of the road of what psychiatry had to offer, right? So these are the polypharmacies, sometimes, um, you know, electroconvulsive therapy treated, sometimes state institution bound individuals who gave it a try, you know, they, they really did believe in it. But because they, they came up, you know, without the results promised, they were seeking something different. Very true. All right, chapter three, point of pain. Um, you talk a lot about the ritual of pain and sort of its purpose and how important it is that emotional tears heal. And I love this line. Um, you must learn how to first be that midwife for yourself, to tell yourself this very simple message over and over again, like a mantra, just let it hurt. Very different from how most of us are raised, which is to say, don't cry, don't be a baby. Um, you're so sensitive, you're too sensitive. Talk a little bit about what have been your insights around pain and tears and emotional healing. 
I was even thinking the other day about, you know, the phrase, he's changed or she's changed. Like that's a pejorative phrase. Like we're not supposed to change, right? And it's a judgment like, oh, look how he's changed, you know? And so there's so many threads woven into our cultural consciousness that are keeping us highly suppressed in line and honestly, um, like kind of widgets in, in you know, this elaborate um, factory-like construction that is focused on product achievement and, and output, right? So where are we in that, right? Like where's the human experience in that? We've lost the thread that so many indigenous cultures hold, which is an understanding that initiation is necessary for transformation into an adult consciousness, that challenges, adversity, and even deep grief have a medicine in them, right? That there is, there's a strength that is refined and built and born of these dark passages, right? Because really, what are we talking about here? We're talking about emotions, right? And, and are we really that scared to feel things like rage or sadness or shame? Yeah, we are. We, it's absolutely terrifying. And I, I don't think you have to track back very far beyond like the very earliest experiences with these emotions when our parents didn't have any capacity to deal with them themselves. They're scared of the emotions that are coming up in them and they're scared of the emotions coming up in these little kids. And so these, you know, the little versions of ourselves got the idea that we could lose love, you know, if we allowed these emotions to get the best of us or allowed them to gain expression. And losing love to a child is the equivalent of death. And it's not just existential, it's literal, right? So I think that's kind of where it's come from. But I think in America in particular, we don't have really um, a deep cultural heritage of ritual or any sort of sacred orientation towards um, the evolution um, and maturation of consciousness, right, over the course of a lifetime. So we're just trying to get by best we can. It's a very fight or flight oriented um, relationship towards life. And so I think a lot of what we have to do if we are going to develop emotional mastery and we're going to own ourselves is to together make room for this kind of vulnerability. And I think we're doing it. I think we're doing it. Um, I see it in the zeitgeist, you know, that we're beginning to understand, you know, when you, when you have two people in front of you and one is like, just like really holding it together, right? Like doing everything they can to make sure they're showing up professional and like they checked all the boxes of their life and then we have the person on the right who's kind of like you know what doing the best I can I got a lot of stuff I'm working on <laughs> you know it's like refreshing that's what Absolutely. we would rather hang out with right so at this point I think our compass is pointing towards authenticity and and that's convenient because exactly. the old methodology it's not only isn't working it's making us sick and it's it's confining us to these very small uh, boxes within which to live. And we're starting to get the sense like maybe there's another way. Absolutely. Chapter four, fear is the sickness. And uh, there's a section here, there's a question that's posed. Um, and it leads to the answer that if you are emotionally repressed, that potentially can be one of the true risk factors for some kind of cancers as well as autoimmunity. And the question is, when as a child, you felt sad, upset, or angry. Was there anyone you could talk to? 
And that question gave me chills. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you why, Kelly, because forget childhood. Ask that question to an adult today. If today you feel sad or lonely or conflicted, do you have someone that you can have an authentic conversation with? Not a prejudged or a conformist uh, oriented conversation, but a true authentic conversation. Um, and I think the answer from majority would be no. Yeah. So talk a little bit about just how critical fear is in driving um, this massive crisis that we have. Yeah, I think it's, it's not very much beneath the surface that most of us are struggling with a, like a torrent of fear, right? And some of it has a name, right? Like some of it's related to financial scarcity or some of it's related to heartbreak or the fear of loss or death. And, and some of it is just this kind of uh, collectively held fear, right? That's bigger than us. It's, we came in with it maybe, and maybe we're holding it um, in the ways that these canaries do for, for the collective, who knows? But when I walk around the world, I don't see that fear out front, right? So where must it be? It's different levels of, of buried. And I actually have, have become deeply sympathetic to the plight of the modern man, which is something novel for me as a, as a healing feminist, you know, um, to acknowledge that I think in many ways, um, you know, a man's answer to that question as an adult would be invariably that they do not have a single person in their life that they can be raw and vulnerable with emotionally, perhaps other than their female partner. But that's not always who we're talking about, right? Like to have, we need, we need many eyes on us, right? We need an entire community of people that we can just show up real with and who are not going to need to fix it. That's a really critical piece of the puzzle, right? Because as a little kid, you might've had, someone, an aunt or whatever, a sister you could go to, but we're so entrained to fix it, to make it go away, that we never get to feel it, right? And, and I'm the queen of that because I have had, I've developed such effective defenses over the course of my life in response to childhood experiences that I, in my entire adult life, never felt fear. Never, like literally not never one time. Shame, never envy, like all of these very natural emotions, I literally never felt them. So when people would come up to me at like activist rallies or whatever and talk about how courageous I am, I would have no idea what, I, no idea what they're talking about. No, truly, because it never felt like that to me. There was no fear driving it. And it was just simply the way I thought I was going to win the world, right? So the degrees and the, the accolades and the like, you know, being this warrior, warrioress, or whatever it is, I thought it would finally give me a sense one day of being right, right enough to feel all the love, right? And, and this is, I think, a very common story. And the more effective defenses your defenses are, the less you feel, right? So that's why they're effective defenses, because they keep you from feeling. It's so buried down there. And so now, I mean, if we make it through this interview and I don't cry like that'll be big for me I cry every day I cry every day and and there's um obviously some catching up I have to do but I feel feelings like shame I feel afraid all the time sometimes over really silly confusing things you know like I'll be going to have lunch with a friend and I'll feel afraid or nervous 
you know, I never had access to that. But the truth is, there's always that, it's like an underground watery world. And you're either aware of it or you're not. But whether you have defenses like mine or defenses that are the opposite, where your feelings are up front, and yeah. you are diagnosed with something like depression, or your, your wildness is up front, and you are diagnosed with something like mania or bipolar disorder, the, the, the commonality is that we're still fighting it. There's still that fight, right? And so I call that the shadow, like the shadow's the hater. It's the one hating you and the one hating everybody else. Everybody else is wrong and you're right. And by the way, you're also wrong about all these things. You know, it's like the inner critic. Yes. And that defensive structure is how we orient in the world. So no wonder we feel isolated and disconnected and like something profound is missing. Absolutely. And you've got this beautiful meditation for fear. Could you, uh, and it's pretty easy and simple. Could you maybe demonstrate it for us? I'm trying to remember which one it was. Uh, it's the one where you, I think it's this one, and you breathe um, through your left nostril. Oh, it's just left nostril breathing, because there's another one I can show you too. Yeah, so there are a couple of things that I, I like to recommend when the feeling of fear is something you're aware of, because that's already a very important step. If you're aware and you can say, wow, I'm feeling really afraid right now, that's enormous. That's huge, right? Just to bring that awareness. And then there are some very simple exercises you can do. One is just left nostril breathing. So you literally just plug your right nostril and you breathe in and out. So you can even do this if you're at a table with someone. You can even go <laughs> I've done this like before interviews. So it's, it's a very simple thing and you're simulating your, your um, relaxation-based nervous system, your parasympathetic, by breathing only in and out of your left nostril. Another one is that you can put, take your hand and you can just put it on your eyes, like on your forehead, on your chest, and then on your belly. And you can just do this a couple of times and just say open, open, open as you're doing it, right? Internally. Okay. And as you do that, you're probably not going to feel like you can open, but you're just going to make contact with your own body like a grounding technique mm -hmm. and you're going to feel that you're probably holding tension in one of those places right that it's like this is so we're like um you know we're creatures in the end and it's like we curl up you know to protect this vulnerable space so when you're feeling afraid there's going to be tension there and that's one of the ways you can you know at least bring awareness awareness is of course as we all know right the it's the first step in beginning the transformational engagement is just to say this is what is this is what is, right? And, and I, I, I embrace it. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I remember the first time I heard that embrace concept. It was very alien to me. Like, what does that mean? I'm going to be excited about this. This is terrifying, and I want this to stop, right? So, so that's why I'm a big proponent of first just witness. But it's nearly impossible to witness if you have not separated out your, your consciousness, I call it adult consciousness, to the extent where you can actually watch that something is happening. And one of the exercises I like to teach that I use extensively with my patients is if you're feeling a feeling, again, that's a great step. You're feeling a feeling, right? Because that's already leagues beyond what I had access to for many decades of my life. But if you're feeling a feeling, can you envision it and experience it as being felt by a same gendered child, right? So if you're feeling rageful, let's say, you know, you just got some really activating email from somebody and you feel like you got to do something about it and, and you're feeling like so you know aggrieved 
can that feeling, that little tantrum inside be experienced by a little girl, right? Like how, how would I comfort her? I wouldn't come over and say, okay, here's column A of what we can do. Here's column B. Let's see how we can arrange all of the variables so that this is advantageous to you. No, I would just be there with her. I would be alongside in a little boat, you know, alongside with her, maybe with one hand on her back and say, wow, you're really, you're really upset. Tell me about that. You know, simple. You know, if you're a parent, you know, it doesn't work to try and come swoop in and be right, first of all, and tell them how they're not nurse. No, you just have to be there. That's all. And it will diffuse and transform. And then ultimately it moves, right? So how can you relate to your own feeling state as if you're nurturing it, right? You're soothing it. You're not swirled up in it. You're not fused with it. And that's one of the ways to cultivate this watcher, right? So the watcher experiences devastation in life or loss. And at the same moment, like this is not a very dramatic example, but I was, I was fired by my book agent and book writer of my first book. Called me on the phone, but probably the week before I was oh. submitting my proposal to, you know, this is obviously not a huge sob story, but it's just an example. Um, submitting the proposal to my second book and they fired me and, you know, with great love. And I, to this day, love these women um, deeply. And I, I started crying. Of course. And I, I was so shocked. And I also felt rejected, you know, of course, which makes sense. But there was some part of me, a little, little part of my brain that said, you know what? There's a reason for this. This makes sense. I know that this is going to lead me where I need to go, right? So that watching little narrative, right? And that doesn't mean I don't cry. But it's that, it's that narrating voice that always, always, always says, it's okay. It's already okay, even if it's not, right? So that helps us to develop the muscle of being okay with not being okay. If you can grow that muscle, then the fear that is, has seeped throughout every crevice of your life begins to flow out, right? And not only that, then you have all this freed energy where now you can see opportunity and you can see, you know, abundance and you can experience gratitude and you can experience all of these light emotions like joy, you know, and pleasure that for the most part, when we're guarding the space of our darker emotions, we don't get access to those either. Right. So it's this expansion into a space of, you know, um, richness, right. That starts with just being okay. Absolutely. Really feeling okay. And it resets, I'm sure, our nervous system, right? The whole, you talk about the, the parasympathetic um, people who, who tend to move towards um, maybe perhaps more sensitivity, more reaction. And something like this where you're starting to accept what is, is definitely going to help uh, the autonomic system, which we know drives so much of the drama in our health. Um, I love how you say that in psychiatry, we've missed some important pieces. I mean, yeah. mental health is a crisis of epic proportion. We're starting to see it down in um, little children, you know, elementary school, middle school. They're being prescribed these, these medications for mental health issues. And symptoms are sort of what we look at as, hey, something's faulty with you. Correct. And you say that symptoms are not necessarily that something is wrong with you. So what is it that psychiatry has missed? What is your big insight here? 
Yeah. It's the context, right? Psychiatry refuses to acknowledge that there's actually anything awry in the world, right? Because if you think about it, when you're struggling with anything ranging from fatigue to poor concentration to low mood um, to sadness to erratic behavior, maybe you're having, you know, perceptual issues, whatever it might be, fundamentally, the, the dominant medical orthodoxy is going to frame you as having the problem. And what's interesting is that I think that we all walk around. Um, I really think it's all of us. We walk around with this sense deeply buried that something is wrong with us, right? That we're not worthy of love, that, that you know, we're not good enough, right? Or the, or the, the, the partner to that, which is that we're too much, right? Whatever it is, we, we carry this and we, we most of us, um, experience this as a result of conditional love-based parenting, right? Where we were raised in a household by whomever our primary caretakers were. And maybe we weren't frankly abused, but even if we weren't, we were introduced to the idealized child, right? To the to the good child. Who is the good child? What do they eat? You know, how much do they eat? Do they do their homework? Do they clean the house? And then any ways in which we departed from that idealized child, we naturally felt inclined to bury and hide those inclinations, right? So maybe it's the, the, the version of little Kelly who cried too much or the version who got mad inappropriately or the version who didn't feel like doing her homework, right? So bury, bury, bury all of those pieces. And so then we walk around life feeling like we have this secret badness. And when you go and you meet with a doctor and you've been feeling unwell in various ways, and that doctor says, you know what? Something is wrong with you. It even has an ICD-10 code, right? <laughs> and here is the medication that's going to help you manage this reality. And it's going to be okay. How does that not feel validating, right? It's, it's, exactly. it's inevitable that you would take the bait if you don't know better. And the, the reason it's a bait or like a poison apple is because what happens is then you're trapped in a, in a dyadic relationship with this physician or clinician where you are constantly revisiting, remember something's wrong with you. Every time you open that pill bottle with your name on it, remember something's wrong with you. Okay, if you don't take these meds, something, the something wrong with you is going to be a problem for you and everyone in, in your life. But if we don't acknowledge that there are many, many things wrong with the world today right that and there have always been things wrong with the world of course but that we are so far off the path of an understanding uh that we are a part of this planet right that we are not just simply standing on it but that we are an emergent phenomenon right connected you know in every way to all that is this green earth we have we're very far flung from that understanding. And that's why, you know, we've come to this relationship, not only to, to, to the environment, but even to our own selves and our own lives where we're just punching the clock, you know, and we're just, it's all convenience based. It's very myopic and it's rife with disconnection where we're disconnected from communities. We don't even know what communities mean. What, who are those like the moms over there while you're dropping your kids off or, is it the people also waiting in the doctor's office? Like, what is a community? We don't have a sense of that. Our families, I mean, I, I don't know anyone practically who has authentic relationships with a family of origin that is extensive, more than like a nuclear modular home kind of a family, right? Where these are people who see you, get, get you, are there for you, and are a part of the fabric of your life. That's largely 
unraveled for most of us, right? We're disconnected from our bodies because all we're taught through advertising and the dominant cultural narrative is that your body is a ticking time bomb and you better be ready for when it goes off, right? And then we, we have this sense like we're more than we're presenting, you know, to the world. So could it be that we're also disconnected from our souls, right? I know that word was not uttered one time in my decade of training, literally not one time. And, and psychiatry actually means etymologically doctor of the soul, amazingly. So this is how disconnected we are and, and how much we find comfort in the material realm, in the, in the visible realm. And the unseen, the invisible, the quantum, if you will, is dismissed, denied, neglected, and even disparaged by this narrative that, that foregrounds that material realm. So we're really at this interesting moment where many people are recognizing I could go to the doctor, right? I could take medication. I could get my diagnosis. I could understand what's going on and know what to do, right? But that we're sensing some of us that there's like maybe a dead end there, right? Like maybe there's like a bankruptcy to that model that we intuitively feel we can't be entirely duped anymore. Right. Not the way we could even 20 years ago, that it's like there's too many people who are having experiences that poke very serious holes in that model. And maybe and it doesn't you're really work, right? That's the problem. It doesn't really work. It does if you are very committed to a certain mindset, right? Because the concept of working, right? So what is, how do we know if it's working or not? If, if the only goal is the management of symptoms, you could argue that in fact it does do that, right? When I was prescribed- Doesn't it create more suicidal, for example, the pharma drugs that are used to manage anxiety, don't they often create more anxiety, more suicidal yeah, thoughts? Absolutely. Terrible but outcome. If, you're, if your perspective is they can always be managed by another medication, then you end up being one of these people who are on five medications when all that happened was you broke up with your boyfriend sophomore year in college, and now 30 years later, you know, you're on, on five or six medications and you have seven new diagnoses. This is a normative pattern in, in our culture, and it's because we are – so I, I believe in a victimless world, right? And, and we are participating. We're choosing to engage that model, mm-hmm. right? So it's, it, cannot, it can no longer be that it's like these hapless patients who are victimized by big, scary, bad medicine. Not anymore, and maybe right. never, um, because you would only engage that if that's also your mindset, right? And that's why when you adopt a different mindset, one that says, no, you know, my symptoms actually are a means through which my own spirit communicates to my conscious awareness, right? How else would I know to attend to these various aspects of my lived experience, whether it's like the coffee I shouldn't be drinking in the morning or, you know, the, the mold in the wall or, you know, the, the lipstick I should stop using, whatever it is. Like, the, how else would we intuit that if we don't have an intuitive apparatus online because we're so inundated and overwhelmed and, and not clear? Right. So until and if you can get clear enough to read your body's subtle signals, it's got to knock louder. That's what a symptom is. It's like it's pulling your skirt saying, pay attention, pay attention. This is not this is not how you are your most powerful. Right. This is not how you get into alignment where you can access your 
creative power, you know, because that's what I've observed, you know, as I've seen people transition from medication based consciousness to med free consciousness, they literally come into to, to the capacity to access their own creative power, or what it is they're here to do. But literally things, businesses, you know, endeavors, nonprofits, communities, works of art, I mean, literal and figurative things begin to emerge from them effortlessly. And they get into a, a flow state that, you know, is, we would have no idea how to engineer, right? So it's, it's only by getting clear enough to be able to, to read your own signals and your body is that compass, right? So if I'm like, do I take this job or not? Do I, you know, make a phone call to this person or not? Do I date this person or not? If my body's clear and my mind is disciplined, I can feel the yes or the no inside. That's, that is the best way right. to determine, right? Because if I'm doing it from a, the pros and cons list of logic that most of us have been enculturated around, we all know we can convince ourselves of some, we have blind spots, right? We can convince Absolutely. ourselves of some pretty crazy Absolutely. stuff. So it's far greater than just like a style of medicine um, that we're contemplating. So Kelly, let's start with chapter one. You talk about um, canaries in a coal mine, and you talk about the fact that we have strayed so far from the path um, that it's really an evolutionary mismatch that is being manifested in our health experiences. Talk a little bit about what do you mean by an evolutionary mismatch? Yeah, so I'd like to reframe, I think, a very popular perception, which is that the people who get right, and who are diagnosed and medicated, but specifically around psychiatric illness, that rather than being these kind of broken, damaged goods, you know, kind of like destined for chronic illness types of folks, that actually I've been told many of those who find themselves in this situation actually believe to be consistent with their own self-perception. Like they actually think about themselves this way. And so when they receive these diagnoses, it feels like, of course, you see, I knew something was wrong with me, right? So rather than that being um, the explanation, what I found is that these are the individuals who are what I call the canaries in the coal mine, right? So they are exquisitely sensitive to the very real things that are amiss and awry on this planet today, right? Whether that's the food that we're eating, the way that we are you know, conducting our, our day-to-day lives in, indoors and without sunlight exposure, without movement or grounding, the way that we have exposed ourselves to toxicants, the 100,000 some unstudied toxicants, the ways that the, we are thinking about life, right? All of the grief that is to be felt around what we're doing to this planet, right? That these individuals, they cannot punch the clock as if everything is okay. On like a deep soul level, there's a rebellion right? There's a no. And sometimes that no looks like chronic fatigue. Sometimes that no looks like multiple chemical sensitivity. Sometimes that no looks like erratic behavior, right? Sometimes that no is just the opting out and shutting down that we call depression. Sometimes the no is like, this is not okay emergency that we call anxiety or panic, right? And so these individuals, once they are brought into the conditions of alignment, which is actually quite simple to do, the power that begins to channel through them, the vision, the creative force is, becomes irrepressible. 
and I, I find them to be the most important vulnerable population on the planet right now because we need that kind of vision to get ourselves out of the crisis we've created. Absolutely. The, definitely, I think. I love this reframing of the fact that, no, I'm not sick. The world around me has created a situation um, that I'm rebelling against. Chapter two, uh, the pill is the problem. Why taking pills for your pain and suffering is the problem, not the solution. Wow, tell us more. I thought the pill was the answer. So did I. <laughs> I thought the pill was the answer. That's why I specialized in prescribing it to pregnant and breastfeeding women. You know, I, I believed so much in that, that model of legitimate science. And so I was extremely shocked to learn what it is that I um, uncovered and also was able to represent from those who have walked this path before me, uh, people like Peter Bregan and Joanna Moncrief and David Healy and Irving Kirsch. I began to read their work that I'd never encountered in my entire near decade of training. Um, prompted by my own, you know, health opportunity, if you will, health crisis. And it was what I learned through their work that helped me to understand that actually in, in six decades of literature, we do not have valid evidence that mental illness is a chemical imbalance of any kind, right? So not for schizophrenia or OCD or depression, or you name it. And the evidence actually doesn't exist. And it's not for lack of effort because there have been post-mortem studies and um, different kinds of brain analyses and metabolite measurements and serum analyses. And it's not, it's come up empty the same way that the genetic efforts to identify the hereditary underpinnings of mental illness have also come up empty, right? And so what we have is a reverse engineered model where the medications that we are applying to these situations have given birth to the theories about what is wrong, the pathology in the patient, right? So if we're giving a medication we've already decided is an antidepressant, then what does this medication do? Oh, that must tell us something about what's wrong with that person's chemistry. And so that reverse engineering is the story of most of the modern medications. Um, the, the trouble is that the evidence base for their efficacy and the evidence base for their adverse effects um, is far broader than you are in any way positioned to learn about in your doctor's office. It's actually really not realistic or maybe even possible for your doctor to truly provide informed consent. And I know this because I was in the position doing the best that I could, and I simply wasn't exposed to information that would have provided my patients true informed consent around the habit-forming nature of these medications and how they are, in my opinion, the hardest chemicals on the planet to discontinue. It's far worse than the opioids and then, you know, crack cocaine or alcohol, far, far, far um, more severely potentially disabling. Um, the risk for impulsive violence, and that includes suicide and homicide that can emerge directly from even a few doses of these medications um, and their correlation. Um, is, is more than just, you know, an umbrella out in the rain and then blaming the umbrella for the rain, that we have a causal understanding of the mechanism behind which um, these medications can induce these states, including in the settings of school shootings, et cetera. Um, and, you know, and for what, right? Like, what are they actually doing? Well, 
if you if you think about alcohol, right, and you think, okay, well, let's say we're studying social anxiety. If we give our study subjects two shots of vodka a night before they go out, you know, or go out to dinner with someone or socialize or whatever, odds are that at the end of four to six weeks, we probably find this to be an effective intervention, right? But we all intuitively know that that wouldn't mean the you know, that we've like resolved an alcohol imbalance, nor would it mean that this is the best option, right? Exactly. That it might be something safer. And so in fact, that's kind of what we're working with when it comes to um, psychotropics, although the efficacy parameters are actually even um, probably, relatively speaking, more um, dismal. Because, you know, when we take into account some of the slights of hand that are permitted by the FDA, um, for the pharmaceutical industry to engage in. These are statistical sleights of hand, but they're also designed, like the way that these studies are designed. And then we take into account something that Irving Kirsch calls the active placebo effect, which means that because of direct-to-consumer advertising, we have all been enculturated to believe that these medications are going to help fix our chemical imbalance, right? And so when we start to have side effects from them, dry mouth, little gastrointestinal distress, little headache, what happens is a whole cascade of healing pharmacopoeia, you know, is unleashed and you actually may feel different. You may feel better, but it's not because of the mechanism of the medication. It's because you believed that you were actually beginning to get better because the medication began to have an effect that told you it was having an effect. And when we compare these medications to medications that have nothing to do with psychiatry, like atropine, which is like, let's say a cardiac medication, but have very similar side effect profiles, right? The efficacy is the same. So we have to disabuse ourselves of this notion that it's actually fixing something specific to our mood, cognition, or behavior, and introduce ourselves to the idea that the medication is a chemical having an effect, just like alcohol is ha having an effect. You may like it, it may be adaptive for you, but it's important not to engage the illusion that it's fixing something in you. It's also important for your own self-empowerment, you know, to, to, to orient towards medication as, you know, a state-altering aid, if you will, rather than something that is fundamentally healing, because there's actually no evidence to suggest that that's what it's doing. And that's what you call uh, psychiatry's dirty little secret, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it makes a lot of sense why I didn't encounter this information in my training. And again, it's because I say, like, you wouldn't go to a butcher to learn about veganism. You know, like, know your source. Exactly. And the source where I got my information is a pharmaceutically subsidized empire that is internally consistent with the belief system that illness is bad, symptoms are arranged from nuisance to life-endangering, and the best we can do is to manage them. I never offered patients remission or a cure. That was never on the menu. Right. I only offered them symptom management. And it wasn't until I learned this information, I put down my prescription pad for good, that I actually you know, encountered an entire population of people on multiple medications for decades of their life who actually felt incredibly unwell if not very actively symptomatic, and at the end of the road of what psychiatry had to offer, right? So these are the polypharmacy, sometimes, um, you know, electroconvulsive therapy treated, sometimes state institution bound individuals who gave it a try, you know, they, they really did believe in it. But because they, they came up, you know, without the results promised, 
they were seeking something different. All right, chapter three, point of pain. Um, you talk a lot about the ritual of pain and sort of its purpose and how important it is that emotional tears heal. And I love this line. Um, you must learn how to first be that midwife for yourself, to tell yourself this very simple message over and over again, like a mantra, just let it hurt. Very different from how most of us are raised, which is to say, don't cry, don't be a baby. Um, you're so sensitive, you're too sensitive. Talk a little bit about what have been your insights around pain and tears and emotional healing. I was even thinking the other day about, you know, the phrase, he's changed or she's changed. Like that's a pejorative phrase. Like we're not supposed to change, right? And it's a judgment like, oh, look how he's changed, you know? And so there's so many threads woven into our cultural consciousness that are keeping us highly suppressed in line and honestly, um, like kind of widgets in, in, you know, this elaborate um, factory-like construction that is focused on product achievement and, and output, right? So where are we in that, right? Like, where's the human experience in that? We've lost the thread that so many indigenous cultures hold, which is an understanding that initiation is necessary for transformation into an adult consciousness, that challenges, adversity, and even deep grief have a medicine in them, right? That there is, there's a strength that is refined and built and born of these dark passages, right? Because really, what are we talking about here? We're talking about emotions, right? And, and are we really that scared to feel things like rage or sadness or shame? Yeah, we are. We, it's absolutely terrifying. And I, I don't think you have to track back very far beyond like the very earliest experiences with these emotions when our parents didn't have any capacity to deal with them themselves. They're scared of the emotions that are coming up in them and they're scared of the emotions coming up in these little kids. And so these, you know, the little versions of ourselves got the idea that we could lose love, you know, if we allowed these emotions to get the best of us or allowed them to gain expression. And losing love to a child is the equivalent of death. And it's not just existential, it's literal, right? So I think that's kind of where it's come from. But I think in America in particular, we don't have really um, a deep cultural heritage of ritual or any sort of sacred orientation towards um, the evolution um, and maturation of consciousness, right, over the course of a lifetime. So we're just trying to get by best we can. It's a very fight or flight oriented um, relationship towards life. And so I think a lot of what we have to do if we are going to develop emotional mastery and we're going to own ourselves is to together make room for this kind of vulnerability. And I think we're doing it. I think we're doing it. Um, I see it in the zeitgeist, you know, that we're beginning to understand, you know, when you, when you have two people in front of you and one is like, just like really holding it together, right? Like doing everything they can to make sure they're showing up professional and like they checked all the boxes of their life and then we have the person on the right who's kind of like you know what doing the best I can I got a lot of stuff I'm working on <laughs> you know it's like refreshing that's what Absolutely. we would rather hang out with right so at this point I think our compass is pointing towards authenticity and and that's convenient because Absolutely. the old methodology 
it not only isn't working, it's making us sick and it's, it's confining us to these very small uh, boxes within which to live. And we're starting to get the sense like maybe there's another way. Chapter four, fear is the sickness. And uh, there's a section here, there's a question that's posed. Um, and it leads to the answer that if you are emotionally repressed, that potentially can be one of the true risk factors for some kind of cancers as well as autoimmunity. And the question is, when as a child you felt sad, upset, or angry, was there anyone you could talk to? And that question gave me chills. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you why, Kelly, because forget childhood. Ask that question to an adult today. If today you feel sad or lonely or conflicted, do you have someone that you can have an authentic conversation with? Not a prejudged or a conformist uh, oriented conversation, but a true authentic conversation. Um, and I think the answer from majority would be no. Yeah. So talk a little bit about just how critical fear is in driving um, this massive crisis that we have. Yeah, I think it's, it's not very much beneath the surface that most of us are struggling with a, like a torrent of fear, right? And some of it has a name, right? Like some of it's related to financial scarcity or some of it's related to heartbreak or the fear of loss or death. And, and some of it is just this kind of uh, collectively held fear, right? that's bigger than us. It's, we came in with it maybe, and maybe we're holding it um, in the ways that these canaries do for, for the collective, who knows? But when I walk around the world, I don't see that fear out front, right? So where must it be? It's different levels of, of buried. And I actually have, have become deeply sympathetic to the plight of the modern man, which is something novel for me as a as a healing feminist, you know, um, to acknowledge that I think in many ways, um, you know, a man's answer to that question as an adult would be invariably that they do not have a single person in their life that they can be raw and vulnerable with emotionally, perhaps other than their female partner. But that's not always who we're talking about, right? Like to have, we need, we need many eyes on us, right? We need an entire community of people that we can just show up real with and who are not going to need to fix it. That's a really critical piece of the puzzle, right? Because as a little kid, you might've had someone, an aunt or whatever, a sister you could go to, but we're so entrained to fix it, to make it go away, that we never get to feel it, right? And, and I'm the queen of that because I have had, I've developed such effective defenses over the course of my life in response to childhood experiences that I, in my entire adult life, never felt fear. Never, like literally not never one time. Shame, never. Envy, like all of these very natural emotions, I literally never felt them. So when people would come up to me at like activist rallies or whatever and talk about how courageous I am, I would have no idea what, I, no idea what they're talking about. No, truly, because it never felt like that to me. There was no fear driving it, and it was just simply the way I thought I was going to win the world, right? So the degrees and the, the accolades and the like, you know, being this warrior, warrioress or whatever it is, I thought it would finally give me a sense one day 
of being right, right enough to feel all the love, right? And, and this is, I think, a very common story. And the more effective defenses, your defenses are, the less you feel, right? So that's why they're effective defenses, because they keep you from feeling. It's so buried down there. And so now, I mean, if we make it through this interview and I don't cry, like that'll be big for me. I cry every day. I cry every day. And, and there's um, obviously some catching up I have to do. But I feel feelings like shame. I feel afraid all the time, sometimes over really silly, confusing things. You know, like I'll be going to have lunch with a friend and I'll feel afraid or nervous. You know, I never had access to that. But the truth is there's always that like an underground watery world and you're either aware of it or you're not. But whether you have defenses like mine or defenses that are the opposite where your feelings are up front and yeah. you are diagnosed with something like depression or you're your wildness is up front and you are diagnosed with something like mania or bipolar disorder. The, the, the commonality is that we're still fighting it. There's still that fight. Right. And so I call that the shadow, like the shadow is the hater. It's the one hating you and the one hating everybody else. Everybody else is wrong and you're right. And by the way, you're also wrong about all these things. You know, it's like the inner critic yes. and that defensive structure is how we orient in the world. So no wonder we feel isolated and disconnected and like something profound is missing. Absolutely. And you've got this beautiful meditation for fear. Could you, uh, and it's pretty easy and simple, could you maybe demonstrate it for us? Yeah, so there are a couple of things that I, I like to recommend when the feeling of fear is something you're aware of, because that's already a very important step. If you're aware and you can say, wow, I'm feeling really afraid right now, that's enormous. That's huge, right? Just to bring that awareness. And then there are some very simple exercises you can do. One is just left nostril breathing. So you literally just plug your right nostril and you breathe in and out. So you can even do this if you're at a table with someone, you can even go <laughs> I've done this like before interviews. So it's, it's a very simple thing and you're stimulating your, your um, relaxation based nervous system, your parasympathetic by breathing only in and out of your left nostril. Another one is that you can put, take your hand and you can just put it on your eyes, like on your forehead on your chest and then on your belly and you can just do this a couple of times and just say open 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 as you're doing it right internally okay. and as you do that you're probably not going to feel like you can open but you're just going to make contact with your own body it's like a grounding technique mm -hmm. and you're going to feel that you're probably holding tension in one of those places right that it's like this is so we're like um you know, we're creatures in the end. And, and it's like we curl up, you know, to protect this vulnerable space. So when you're feeling afraid, there's going to be tension there. And that's one of the ways you can, you know, at least bring awareness. Awareness is, of course, as we all know, right, the, it's the first step in beginning the transformational engagement is just to say, this is what is. This is what is. Right. And, and I, I, I embrace it. Yeah. I, I remember the first time I heard that embrace concept. It was very alien to me. Like, what does that mean? I'm going to be excited about this. This is terrifying. And I want this to stop. Right. So, so that's why I'm a big proponent of first just witness, but it's nearly impossible to witness if you have not separated out your, your consciousness, I call it adult consciousness to the extent where you can actually watch that something is happening. And one of the exercises I like to teach that I use extensively with my patients is, if you're feeling a feeling, 
again, that's a great step. You're feeling a feeling, right? Because that's already leagues beyond what I had access to for many decades of my life. But if you're feeling a feeling, can you envision it and experience it as being felt by a same gendered child, right? So if you're feeling rageful, let's say, you know, you just got some really <laughs> activating email from somebody and you feel like you got to do something about it and, and you're feeling like so, you know, aggrieved. Can that feeling, that little tantrum inside be experienced by a little girl, right? Like how, how would I comfort her? I wouldn't come over and say, okay, here's column A of what we can do. Here's column B. Let's see how we can arrange all of the variables so that this is advantageous to you. No, I would just be there with her. I would be alongside in a little boat, you know, alongside with her, maybe with one hand on her back and say, wow, you're really, you're really upset. Tell me about that. You know, simple. You know, if you're a parent, you know, it doesn't work to try and come swoop in and be right, first of all, and tell them how they're not honored. No, you just have to be there. That's all. And it will diffuse and transform. And then ultimately it moves, right? So how can you relate to your own feeling state as if you're nurturing it, right? You're soothing it. You're not swirled up in it. You're not fused with it. And that's one of the ways to cultivate this watcher, right? So the watcher experiences devastation in life or loss and at the same moment like this is not a very dramatic example but i was i was fired by my book agent and book writer of my first book called me on the phone but probably the week before i was oh. submitting my proposal to you know this is obviously not a huge sob story but it's just an example um submitting the proposal to my second book and they fired me and you know with great love and i to this day love these women um deeply and i i started crying of course. and I, I was so shocked and i also felt rejected you know of course which makes sense but there was some part of me a little little part of my brain that said you know what there's a reason for this this makes sense i know that this is going to lead me where i need to go right so that watching little narrative right and that doesn't mean i don't cry but it's that it's that narrating voice that always 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 says it's okay it's already okay even if it's not right so that helps us to develop the muscle of being okay with not being okay if you can grow that muscle then the fear that is has seeped throughout every crevice of your life begins to flow out right and not only that then you have all this freed energy where now you can see opportunity and you can see you know abundance and you can experience gratitude and you can experience all of these light emotions like joy you know and pleasure that for the most part when we're guarding the space of our darker emotions we don't get access to those either right so it's this expansion into a space of you know um richness right that starts with just being okay that's a wrap share your love with a five-star review and get show notes at healthbootcamps.com connect with us on health bootcamps facebook and twitter also don't forget to check out other great interviews and subscribe to the get healthier podcast today